This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. And more Gen Con. And also Gen Con. everybody we're here with all sorts of post gen con recaps and extravaganza and reverberant plaver but first let's once again welcome our lead sponsor for this episode that's gorilla games hey ken what is gorilla games up to at this very moment i believe at this very moment gorilla games is in the midst of kickstarting monster derby would that link be gorillaboardgames.com slash monster derby backslash robin Backslash. Backslash. Monster Derby, as of course you and all true gaming cognizant I know, is a full contact road rage, road race board game where you secretly pick the winners and then take turn moving the monsters. And does each monster have uh, wacky powers? But of course. Otherwise, what kind of monster game would it be? A second-rate monster game, not a Gorilla Games monster game. Indeed, and I went over at Gen Con to uh, check out the prototype, and indeed, not only does it have wacky powers, but they are activated by, guess what, Ken? What? Wacky dice. Wacky dice. There you go. That's what you need. It's like, uh, it's gonna be like uh, wacky races with uh, Grape Ape and uh, Snagglepuss and all those guys, only with monsters. Uh, well, in fact, it features uh, such terrifying uh, monsters as uh, your mummies, uh, your, uh, your Draculas, and mm-hmm. your tortoise. And your tortoise. Well, tortoises are frightening when you realize they're holding up the world. Uh, indeed, yes, and they apparently have a special way of winning all sorts of races, so I'd watch out for those tortoises. Uh, so obviously, from what you're hearing us say here, you know that this game is fun. But the campaign ends Labor Day, so you only have until Labor Day to chime in and support it. So you should perhaps do that if you want your very own Monster Derby uh, from Jeff Syadek and the good people at Gorilla Games. So that's, uh, once again, GorillaBoardGames.com backslash Monster Derby, or head on over to Kickstarter and enter the obvious search terms. And once again, it's time for a Gen Con travel advisory in which we will review all of the exciting things that happened to us in the space of our sojourn at Gen Con 2013. And uh, Ken was saying off mic that he has largely recovered, save for a bit of fog on the voice from Gen Con. I don't know if I've completely recovered because yesterday was program book day for the Toronto International Film Festival, so I had my travel day and have yet to have a decompression day, but hopefully I won't be uh, rambling too incoherently as we recall the glory and fun and excitement and whirl that is Gen Con. And for me, the whirl is sort of getting ever smaller because I want to spend as much possible time as I can at the Pelgrain booth uh, watching my books fly off the table because this year Hill Folk and Blood on the Snow were there and it was very exciting to see the reaction to them and to be able to get copies into the hands of backers who were there at the show. That did us a big uh, help because the price of shipping has uh, spiked horrifyingly since we did the campaign in October, and it was also just great to get to talk to people who supported us, sign the books. We had a couple of signings where the many and various authors of Hill Folk series pitches uh, signed books, and uh, Ken, uh, you not least among them. 
So it was very exciting to see the response to that and to see just how much the Kickstarter campaign does to create awareness. I had to uh, pitch the game to a certain number of people and kind of hit upon a fun way of pitching the game, but a lot of people already uh, kind of knew about it, and that was very exciting. I even had one person come up and say that he had heard about it from his uh, adult teenage kids who are involved in the mush movement and that they were telling uh, Dad to check it out. So uh, that's very exciting. We'll have to try and track those people down and figure out how they found out about Hillfolk and what use they are putting drama system to in their uh, mushing and mudding style activities. Yeah, I think that the simming market, the, the, the mushing and online sort of text-based freeform gaming that is almost certainly the majority of role-playing done in the world and almost certainly the majority of it done in this country, sort of the mythical China market of role-players. But I think that uh, the drama system is so perfectly keyed to that kind of play and is so light and easy and gets so far out of the way of the story uh, while still providing the motor for it that Again, if you if you get one uh, clot of uh, connector simmers or maven simmers, then I think that there may be some movement into that because I think it's really built for that in a way that more sort of uh, dice happy or mechanics heavy games are are not as as great as they may be around the table. One thing when you have a new game at Gen Con is you have to sort of quickly on the Thursday develop your table pitch for it as people come up and want to know about it, and you kind of refine that as you go along. But in this case, because of the Kickstarter campaign and because I'd been on various podcasts, I'd already sort of honed the basic explanation of how it worked. But the fun thing about explaining Hill Folk to people who didn't know what it was is that in some cases, I was actually able to break into a little actual role-playing in the course of the pitch. Because uh, as you might know, the main thing about drama system is the way that scenes work and the way that the the exchange of drama tokens rewards people for giving in to other player characters in dramatic scenes as often as they dig in. And so I would then launch into a pitch where it's like, well, I'm the chieftain of the tribe and you're my shiftless son and I'm trying to describe, uh, get you to go on a raid and rectify the uh, dishonor that you've brought to the tribe by being so shiftless. And in some cases, that would just continue and we would, uh, I would talk about the drama tokens some point. But uh, in other cases, we actually started to kind of play out the scene a bit, which uh, was a lot of fun. And uh, sometimes people would come up in twos. And so I would uh, uh, get another little mini scene in with someone at the table. So that was a, a delightful little confluence of uh, marketing and content. Now, you had a new book at the show, too, that uh, sold out. Yes, yes, it did. Uh, Double Tap, the Knights nice Black Agents expansion book, uh, which was put together by myself uh, with a lot of other writers. Uh, Will Hindmarch adds the uh, infiltration, adds the hacking, adds the surveillance contest uh, at the level of the thriller chase rules so that you can make any of those the centerpiece of a session or the centerpiece of a scenario. Plus, he adds terrific new manhunt rules that turn the hot lead rules on their head and let you hunt down a vampire who's attempting to escape you. So... That's sort of, I think, the centerpiece of it, but then there's also Kevin Culp provided a bunch of um, locations for stories to take place. John Adamus wrote a bunch of cameo NPCs to drop into those locations. We had uh, authors put together uh, lists of gear. Uh, we had, we have, of course, expansions on all of the basic abilities with um, the uh, uh, new TFFBs, new clues, new spends, 
all kinds of ways to use those abilities in play, not just, you know, to gather clues and information, but also to uh, deepen and enrich the uh, both the role-playing and the tactical situation. Then there's uh, stuff from Page XX, such as James Palmer's terrific uh, Sus Pyramid, in which you can play against a vampire conspiracy that is already in the throes of tearing it itself apart, uh, which is a great uh, game model in and of itself, and many, many more, the the proverbial many, many more. I also added some more monsters and a new vampire, so I think that it's pretty much, regardless of what you're using Knights Black Agents for, Double Tap will let you use more of it, and as you say, it's sold out in sort of a gratifying speed, although, of course, <laughs> ideally what you want is for the game to sell out down to one copy, which you then carry away as your uh, as your booth swag, but um, selling out entirely is certainly the next best possibility. There are no absolute victories in Table Weaselry, me- merely uh, various gradations of victory and, and triumph. Exactly. Uh, speaking of which, I also had another new book out at the show at the Podgrain Press Table, and that was Esoterrorist Second Edition. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, this is the main complaint that people had about uh, the original Esoterrorist was that there wasn't enough of it. Yes. Uh, the, the portion was judged to be somewhat small. Always a good complaint to hear. Indeed. So this has a whole bunch of additional setting material and background, uh, the sorts of sort of world-building stuff that uh, some people were looking for, including a really cool campaign frame by Gareth Ryder Hanrahan called Station Duty, and that is one in which rather than being a globe-trotting operative, you are stationed in one location that has a particular connection to the big badness of the outer dark and you are getting engaged with the community as every week you investigate a new terrible case that is set there. Uh, Coincidentally enough we're going to see a model for this appear on television soon because there's going to be a spin-off of Supernatural in which Hunters are stationed in Chicago, of all strange places. Oh. And uh, so you'll be able to uh, compare uh, what they do on that show, the name of which I don't know if it's been announced yet, but I think there's going to be like a, a sneak wool pilot as part of the main Supernatural show, and then this other thing is going to uh, grow out of it, or is supposed to grow out of it. And so it'll be interesting to compare the structure that Gareth lays out in Esoterrorist to something that is very similar to it that is coming down the pike on your television screens. And until that time, you can, of course, watch uh, your favorite seasons of Buffy to see how that has been done with a slightly lighter-hearted tone than Esoterrorists uh, usually admits. But it's the same basic model of uh, Hellmouth and Orbiters thereof. And also as part of Pugrain Press's policy of pushing out a surprising number of products before Gen Con. Mm. Uh, the long-awaited, long-gestating, uh, perhaps long-mutating Eternal Lies uh, showed up. Actually, to my, I didn't even know to expect that, and that's a proverbial massive tome uh, by the aforementioned Will Hindmarch and Jeff Tidball with Jeremy Keller. And what that is is it's Trail of Cthulhu's tribute to the great world-spanning campaigns of Call of Cthulhu's past, uh, particularly it's our tribute to Masks of Neuralathotep, and I think it has a really cool kind of hook or premise that uh, sort of reverses the usual pattern. Yeah, there are spoilers in it, and we shan't be giving them away, but the basic setup is that uh, in back in the 1920s in Call of Cthulhu, a bunch of bold investigators came to face a cosmic world-eating evil and screwed up. And you are picking up the pieces, which is so perfectly evocative of the 1930s, that, you know, I can't believe I didn't think of it, but Will and or <laughs> Jeff did, and 
man, what they did with, first of all, it was just great to see it because I've been obviously friends with Will forever and I've been watching him <laughs> sort of push this game out his game designer canal for, you know, it seems like years. Actually, it has been years. And then to see it there. And then the great thing was when you would give it to the, uh, the, the punters when they'd come up to the table and ask what was new, you could say, well, here's Eternal Eyes and you pass it to them and you can watch their wrists sag under the impact of, uh, <laughs> how thick and heavy and massive and full of evil the book is. It was, uh, it was great to see the look on their face when they realized that they were going to have to start using lumbar support to carry the book away. Yes, we had a couple of uh, gamers uh, spavined by exposure only to uh, convention center pizza slices. I believe they fell into the aisle and had to be uh, carted away. But, you know, that that's what you've got to do to bring uh, thick gaming tomes of Cthulhu goodness to the masses. That's right. You can't uh, you can't let uh, single, singles and collateral damage stop you from distributing Cthulhuid wisdom, or unwisdom as the case may be. And sliding only slightly over in a category of our shameless bragging segment here in Travel Advisory, you uh, triumphed at the Ennies, Ken. Yes, I triumphed for values of triumph, but uh, I won two silver Ennies for Knights Black Agents, one for best writing and one for best game. The best game silver came behind the gold Ennie for Iron Kingdoms, which is the new privateer press uh, fantasy uh, role-playing game, and which is just a beautiful game. I haven't uh, really sort of dug into the rules of the mechanics, but man, that is one of those best-of-breed design games that remind you that Privateer Press has been sort of burgeoning away in the corner of the hobby that I don't pay a lot of attention to because I don't do a lot of tabletop fantasy anymore. But man, they do some pretty stuff, and all this stuff has always been beautiful, but Iron Kingdoms was amazing looking. So if the mechanics and the setting and the rest of it are anything like the degree of care they put into the um, uh, into the main book, I don't I don't feel too terribly bad about getting the silver to them. I mean, it's just a, a great looking game. And then the silver for best writing, I point out, was taken to Wolfgang Bohr's uh, Kobold's Guide to World Building, which was a book that I believe has a dozen writers on it. So Wolfgang Bohr had to bring ten guys to beat me for <laughs> an any for best writing. And uh, since one of those guys was Mike Stackpole, I think that that is you know. My Herculean labors have been rewarded w uh, more than well enough for the Silver Any. So uh, Wolfgang brought a cannon to a gunfight. Exactly. So I was very grateful that the uh, that the Silver went to Knights Black Agents because I did I did pretty much write that game for a great long time, and I did put a lot of well, not just a lot of my interests and my brain space into it, but I I really spent a lot of time trying to write that in a tone that would be conducive to how I wanted people to pick it up and play it, and I think that came out. Certainly, the feedback that I've gotten, they've said so, and then I was, it was nice to see the Ennies sort of echo that uh, that uh, that approval as well. So, we, yeah, it was a good night. I mean, I think uh, we would all have liked to have seen Zelazny Quartet win for Best Adventure because uh, Gareth deserves it for taking my outline and uh, running with it as spectacularly as he did. Obviously, uh, since it's gum Gumshoe Systems, Robin would have gotten to go up on stage and, uh, and uh, be polite about uh, winning again for Best Rules. So there... It would have been nice to win more, but those were the two that I was looking most forward to winning, so I, I can't complain at all. And it was interesting to sort of see the entire evening unfold and, and get a sense of where 
things are in terms of the fan zeitgeist. At the beginning of the evening, you saw a lot of those really gratifying awards where uh, people came out of nowhere to win awards, and uh, then uh, it seemed like a pretty evenly spread bag of hosannas until you got later into the evening and the bigger prizes came out and uh, Paizo once again demonstrated the love of their community for their products and really showed that they still have a, a big chunk of community uh, mindshare as their erstwhile corporate adversaries over at uh, Wizards of the Coast continue to sort of uh, work away at getting the next iteration of uh, D&D out. And so the product of the year was a giant tome of Pathfinder NPCs, mm -hmm. uh, which is on one level the sort of unglamorous, utile product that you would rarely expect to see rewarded in that way. But if you uh, play Pathfinder, you know what an enormous <laughs> gift, let's say, what an enormous gift it is to have someone else design all of the NPCs for you and give you all the stats that you feel you need for them. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, sort of refreshing in a way, actually, that something that is unglamorous, although it actually looks really gorgeous, uh, but uh, unglamorous in concept is really sort of a very servicey uh, book. Uh, you know, the people who play Pathfinder uh, loved that enough to uh, push it over the top and make it the uh, give it the top award at the Ennies. And uh, I don't know if there's ever been another occasion when uh, something like that has uh, risen to the top. And, you know, just in terms of the amount of work involved in putting something like that together, especially with all of the labor involved of putting uh, 3.5 stats together, it's actually, I think, kind of great to see that. Uh, rewarded. Yeah, the um, the amount of work that it goes into making Pathfinder games, it's 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 a lot harder because the game is a lot more complex. It re requires a lot more balancing and a lot more sort of uh, on the ballness in really really minute uh, picky ways uh, from the designers and from the writers. So Paizo does a really great job with that game and with that uh, with that product line. And then to see something like you say, like NPC Codex, which back when I was running, you know, three five, I would have. I would have fallen on that with hosannas and rose petals. Um, so it's it's nice to see something like that, uh, you know, take it away. Again, Paizo is going to be in this as long as Paizo wants to be in this. It's not it's not like they are... Um, <laughs> they're not going anywhere, as far as I'm concerned. And they're... In, in, if you're looking at big companies, they right now are the, are the best of breed in virtually all senses, not just in design, not just in aesthetics in terms of making the books look pretty, but also just in terms of you know, interacting with their fans, producing stuff their fans actually want, treating their fans well. I, I think that Paizo is a, very much a company to emulate, so good for them. If I was to tease out another trend from the Ennies, it's sort of the growth of international gaming and people from uh, all around the world now bringing gaming products to people's uh, gaming tables. Uh, the uh, guys from uh, Shadows of Estrin uh, took a couple of awards, and uh, it was very touching to see the gratitude with which they received them. And I think that's a, a testament to sort of the uh, global village that is now gathering through the internet around gaming. Uh, our favorite 
Brazilian Icelander, uh, Pedro Ziviani, won uh, an award for Mythic Iceland. uh, And that was also very exciting to see, especially since it was his first book. And to see somebody uh, take an any for that was... uh, I would would say he's the world's best Brazilian Icelander. I would put him against any other Brazilian Icelander you care to name. I I certainly didn't mean to suggest that uh, I was wrong in my subjective impression of him as a Brazilian Icelander. I was uh, just putting that in terms of affection. But I'm sure that since he's my favorite Brazilian Icelander, therefore he is the best Brazilian Icelander. Yeah, I think that when, when Ken and Robin both make uh, make a judgment about a Brazilian Icelander, we can pretty much be treated as gospel on this topic. And of course, Pedro designed the Icelandic saga for Drama System that is the title book of Blood on the Snow, the exactly. companion volume that was also out at the uh, show. And uh, I'm very grateful to him not only for his really great pitch, but also for having a pitch that had a great title that I could turn into the title of the companion. Do you have any other uh, thoughts on broader trends that we could tease out from the Any Awards this year? I think I was interested to see that the Ennies have almost gotten to the point where they are now a little bigger than the Ennies guys understand that they are. There's, There's now areas where they're giving awards. I mean, for example... Uh, the, the best example, and not to pick on anyone, but the uh, there was a Green Ronin um, uh, uh, supplement called uh, Night's Watch that won both for aid and accessory, and uh, I think it won either the silver or the gold for supplement or, or whatever it was. And so having the same product entered in two categories is a little sketchy when uh, if it's not a, a category like product of the year versus supplement, you know, something like that, when it's not an overarching category. So... I, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe there isn't uh, getting to a point where the Ennies have, have reached full Enniness and that they need to start uh, doing sort of the minor um, corrective course stuff that will keep the Ennies, you know, sort of the premier gaming award going into it as opposed to, you know, start chasing their tail and bifurcating things endlessly and trying to please micro constituencies. In, in other words, clearly d- delimiting what constitutes an aid slash accessory from what constitutes a supplement, which... Uh, certainly to just hearing those words is not entirely clear to me. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, and again, this is the sort of thing that they can easily take control of and they can easily run it. The guys who run the Ennies are, are obviously very professional at putting together uh, an award, uh, you know, from soup to nuts. And so something like this is just the sign that maybe the the process is now exactly as big as it needs to be. The awards are just as big as they need to be in terms of um, coverage. And they can now just start, you know, you know, policing the boundaries a little closer and putting more effort into the actual process of, you know, just providing one or two good lights for the ceremony would have made the, 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 the live stream, which is available online and we may or may not link to from the show notes, or maybe we'll make Jeremy do it, would have gone a long way to making that live stream even more accessible to people. But just having the live stream up is a huge move from last year. So uh, they're, you know, they're moving by leaps and bounds. I think that now they can start just moving by steps. I think it is really interesting the extent to which, at least in the role-playing space, that they have completely eclipsed the Origins Awards in terms of the prestige that they gather. And I think that is a testament to the fact that game designers get to interfere with the rules of the Origins Awards Mm -hmm. and are kept at a firm remove from deciding uh, what the rules are for a set of awards that they are uh, due to receive. And the credibility of the Eddie's uh, community and the uh, particularly the people who uh, run the award and keep that going, uh, you know, compared to the 
uh, amount of confusion and uh, the attempts at change that have surrounded uh, the Origins Awards for a, a long time. They've hit sort of a stable point where they've actually uh, been the same thing at the Origins Awards for long enough to start thinking about starting to change things again, but that process is notoriously uh, fraught, yeah. and uh, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you can see the benefit of uh, not having the potential recipients of the awards involved in organizing them. Yeah, no, the, the Ennies are, they've always been sort of special and wonderful because they really did just grow out of that fan community around EN world, but to grow into something professional and worth repeating, something that, you know, maybe someone should send out um, uh, press releases to the Indianapolis, what is it, the Star Journal, some paper there, maybe have the paper, you know, come in and cover it. This is like, you know, you have, you know, maybe it's not the Oscars, qua Oscars, but it's, but it's certainly the, um, uh, the equivalent of the, of the BAFTAs or, or some other, um, uh, uh, important film award and they've got it right there in their backyard and uh you know they had 50,000 people in in Indianapolis for Gen Con so that I think is we're we're at the point now that the Ennies can be shown off to the outside world because they look good and and they are something that's that's worth talking about and as you say within the community um certainly uh game designers that I know are are really really psyched to to be nominated for the Ennies and they're also really really psyched to win them and I think that's a a sweet spot that is not as easy to get uh, for uh, game awards, as it might be. Although I don't want them ever to get so fancy that I can't swan in wearing my lobster shirt. Right. Well, as they say in the invitation, uh, we would like nominees to dress um, as they would dress for business. And since I'm pretty <laughs> sure they don't want me to dress as I actually dress for business, I figure that um, uh, wearing pants and a second shirt is, you know, that that's kind of my dressing up for them. Yes. Well, they want you to presumably to dress as you would for convention business, and that involves... Uh, uh, lobster shirts, in my case, and uh, various T-shirts proclaiming the various virtues of Chicago in yours. Exactly. Uh, so speaking of awards, let's uh, look at the Diana Jones Award this year, which, through the actions of the mysterious Cabal, was this year awarded to Tabletop, and uh, Will Wheaton was there to accept the award. And if anyone doubted that uh, Will would be excited to receive an award from our little uh, crowd of people. Uh, you can check on YouTube and see his acceptance speech and see that indeed he was uh, genuinely very happy to receive it. So that was sort of a, a great uh, moment. I was very happy to see Tabletop win because in order to have a thriving Tabletop game community, you need not only uh, the work of game designers to bring games out into the world, but you need an infrastructure to get those games into people's hands. And for a long time, we have struggled with the difficulties of being a uh, niche industry that is actually sort of underneath our feet now, becoming less niche all the time. And part of that is just that the uh, cultural identification with nerdy things is growing by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that uh, more and more women are becoming involved, and you know, if we reach gender parity, we've doubled our market. That's uh, <laughs> no sh that's no shabby thing to achieve. Uh, but also, the ways of making people aware of games has changed. And if you just look at the scale of people who watch an episode of Tabletop and the results uh, in stores and in online ordering once something airs on Tabletop, or in fact, is even just gets a shout out on Will's blog, is uh, really quite amazing that he's I don't know where he's 
getting this huge crowd of people who are incredibly interested in games but not yet aware of fiasco uh, from but it's a huge number of people and uh you know i think that we can kind of tend as designers to downgrade the value of you know this isn't marketing in this case this is uh, a really fun form of gaming journalism but that things that get games in front of people's eyes and increase their awareness of them in a world where it's more and more difficult to uh, get things in front of uh, anybody, uh, they are doing a, a huge boon. And that's why I felt that that award was uh, uh, highly deserving. And it wasn't just uh, uh, touching to see uh, Will's response to it, but I felt, you know, that they uh, were being justly rewarded for uh, doing something great and something that I think has succeeded beyond uh, anybody's expectations, including, I would suspect, everybody involved in making tabletop. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that anyone can question uh, Will Wheaton's genuine uh, love of gaming and his love of the, you know, our specific nerdy uh, vestibule of gaming uh, that that we are. Uh, he's he's you know been very very forthright about that throughout his whole uh, blogging career. He's you know referred to it a lot of times where. People, I'm sure, would much rather hear about, you know, what was um, uh, what was Riker like or whatever. And so uh, he's, you know, definitely a real gamer. Yeah, I, I know this, you know, at least secondhand. I've never played a game with Will Wheaton. Um, I haven't really made it a giant priority to play games with Will Wheaton because I almost never play games at conventions, regardless of how many uh, former Star Trek actors are there. And there's a long, uh, there's a long <laughs> line of people ahead of you. Yeah, and and you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he's obviously a great guy. I know people who who uh, are are friends with him and are uh, good judges of great guys, and I'm willing to take their word for it. Um, and his uh, love of gaming, like I say, is is genuine and real. So it was really nice that he got the award and that he appreciated the award. It's always nicer than if you'd given it to someone who you uh, suspected is just, you know, there um, uh, to, to mark a, a line on their resume and move on. But I think the whole, the whole slate was good. It's the Diana Jones nominations are usually a pretty strong slate this time. I think they were stronger than they have been, you know, even regularly. And so I was, I was happy to see him win. I would have been happy to see any of the, any of the nominees win. Right. And and if you are one of the people who uh, grouses about the way that the Diana Jones committee uh, stacks uh, apples against oranges, uh, this year it would be as apples against oranges versus plums uh, versus strawberries and possibly a socket wrench. Yeah. Uh, because right. no two of those things were in the same category. There's a role-playing game, a book about gaming, a, a card game, an indie-style role-playing game, and a web series about gaming so and a and a convention and and a convention uh so sorting out how all of those things uh, fit together on a, a scale of excellence is uh, a, a a difficult job in prioritizing especially when they're all such great exemplars of what it is that they're uh, doing and i guess that you know that the where the award goes is a, a sign of the collective headspace of the mysterious group of worthies who uh, chooses the eventual winner. Yeah, I would like to um, uh, mention that uh, for those of us, uh, those of you in the uh, Ken and Robin audience who are uh, game designers or are going to be at the Diana Jones committee meeting, uh, the Diana Jones Awards party at next Gen Con, um, if you could do us the favor and have everyone around you shut the hell up during the award presentation, that would make uh, Ken and Robin happy, and I suspect it would make uh, the mysterious cabal also happy. Whoever they might be. And it, it might make the next award winner happy. And uh, 
that might be someone that you are friends with or want to have something, uh, you know, want to get some, get, at the very least, get a free copy of their game from. So Yes, this has been a long-standing gripe of mine with the combination of the uh, party, which is the first sort of schmoozing event for all of the uh, game industry people to get together and to uh, uh, hug and express their joy at being in uh, one another's company, but the uh, there is a certain percentage of people who uh, continue yakking during the award, and uh, I would certainly love for some sort of increased measures to uh, show a little respect for the winner. So if you're uh, listening to this and you're a scofflaw who yaks during the awards and you are susceptible to shame even when you've availed yourself of a drink ticket, uh, I uh, urge you to remember these words when next time rolls around because just as you do not want to make baby puppies cry, you do not want to make Ken and Robin sad, do you? No, that would be that, that would be the act of a churl, and no churl listens to Ask Ken and Robin. Yes, although I try not to let churls make me sad. Uh, sometimes they do make me grind my teeth, and there, there was a churl or two in attendance. But that was just a, a light sprinkling of cognitive dissonance over what was a really lovely and joyful event. What did you draw about the state of the gaming industry in general from the convention this year, Ken? I think that uh, what I drew about the state of the gaming industry has to be constrained, first of all, by the fact that certainly since it moved to Indianapolis and probably since the last two years of Milwaukee, Gen Con has been too big for me to get to, right? Gen Con is now a thing that a lot of people are doing in ways that have nothing to do with me and vice versa. My Gen Con is a subset of the complete Gen Con that's available. So knowing the state of the industry from my little segment of Gen Con is a little difficult, but I can say big picture, Gen Con has increased its attendance 75% in the last, what, five years, something like that. It had almost 50,000 paid badges, plus some number of hangers-on and uh, uh, floaty professionals and staff. So easily 50,000 people were there for Gen Con. That, that is a giant number. And basically, whenever they build a new hotel, it fills up too. Yes, it did. And the hotels are getting farther away from the convention center too. But the, um, uh, but, but that, that's, that metric right there says that the state of the industry is strong. If, if Gen Con is going from strength to strength, like you say, filling up hotels as fast as they can be built, filling up events as fast as they can be programmed, the event book, uh, the, the program book this time was too big to fit in the program book. They they have now uh, basically outpaced the ability of um, cheap magazine binding to contain Gen Con. The, the state of the industry can't help but be healthy if this is its base. Now, whether or not individual members of the industry have found out how to talk to that base is always the question. But I think, you're, I mean, you're, the points you made earlier, the fact that, you know, the, the, the increasing geekification of popular culture, the fact that um, uh, now it's the guy who was playing Dungeons and Dragons is controlling whether or not you get email. I think that's concentrating popular culture's mind uh, pretty effectively. You've got you know a billion dollars for the Avengers, which is not something that necessarily would have occurred 
uh, ten years ago, even. And, uh, nor would they have been able to make an Avengers that would have been worth that. Right, yes. Yeah, so we we're very glad that it waited. Uh, but, but you have computer games have been bigger than Hollywood for some time now. And most of those computer games come at one or another remove out of the tropes, out of the mechanics even, that we pioneered in tabletop gaming, in adventure gaming. I think that our natural market is is huge. Like you say, you wonder how can there be X number of people, uh, you know, how can there be hundreds of thousands of people who've never heard of Fiasco but still care about tabletop games? I think that, you know, the, that, the question is not what's wrong with the market, it's what's wrong with the companies that are not trying to ag- aggressively move into those markets, that are not acting like suddenly they're, they're part of a, a grown-up world of pop culture and a grown-up wired world in which identifying subgroups has been has never been easier, and marketing to those subgroups has never been easier, assuming that you're willing to do it on their terms. And as you mentioned, you know we're, we're getting to gender parity, and so we're doubling our audience right there. The state of the industry, I think, in this case, is as strong as any given player in the industry wants to make it. And Paizo is proving that you can continue to go from success to success to success, selling out print runs with the most arcane and uh, gamery and uh, fiddly bit related <laughs> role playing game you can imagine and as long as you do it really really well and you provide exactly that experience for the people who want it you are you know there's going to be lines around the block at your booth fantasy flight if you looked at them with the with the quality board games the $100 board game model that they've got again there there was literally lines to get into their booth on the floor and buy things it wasn't even a line for a demo the demos were all outside the line area this was just i want to go in and shop and there were lines for that i think in a world where that is going on where you look at companies like, um, uh, a little farther down, you look at Pinnacle in the mid-tier, you look at Steve Jackson games, uh, going from strength to strength with Munchkin, and then bringing Ogre back in what may or may not have been the best use of math that they've ever done, but is certainly something that captures the attention of the wider uh, nerdosphere. Well, it, it is exciting to have a, a game box that is the same weight as a tank. As a tank, yes, that you can actually use in another game, of uh, a life-size game of... of uh, of skirmish warfare, take it out to your paintball center and hide in it, and and down to Evil Hat, for example, taking uh, what began as basically house rules for fudge and turning it into you know ten thousand and fifteen thousand copy sales for uh, Dresden Files, and then probably more than that uh, before all is said and done for Fate Core, which also just it came out before the show, but is uh, has been doing great gangbusters. I think they had like six thousand people on their on their uh, Kickstarter, and then. There's going to be even more, obviously, as as the as the Fate Core becomes more and more available. Uh, the the state of the industry again is as strong as any given player in the industry wants to make it. And yeah, it involves you know uh, showing up for work and answering fans and writing giant codices full of horrible, boring NPCs. But if that's what it involves, <laughs> that's what it involves, right? You mentioned Kickstarter, and I think that. Uh, there are some in the gamosphere who uh, like to look for signs of uh, doom and gloom as much as Gen Con assiduously disproves that nearly every single year. And uh, one of the fears, I think, that was out there is basically that we would all get to Gen Con and find out that a year's worth of Kickstarter activity had drained all of the alpha gamers of their economic resources and that we'd be back in the old days where people came around on Thursday to make careful lists of things because they might be able to buy one more thing if they didn't eat any hot dogs all week. Uh, But uh, the reverse certainly seemed to be true. It did not seem that the Kickstarter revolution had uh, stolen the thunder of the 
meeting of minds at Gen Con, but in fact had stoked people's excitement and enthusiasm. And little wonder, since it's been able to do things like bring Sandy Peterson back to tabletop gaming. Yeah. Uh, he was at the Chaosium booth demoing like a juggernaut his Cthulhu Wars board game with those uh, cool prototype uh, figures and uh, he's going to be doing a Glorantha bestiary for moon design. Uh, he's back in with both feet and that's yeah. because the gaming community has said we love you Sandy please come back in the form of uh, financial rewards that enable him to do that and to uh, get uh, away from the uh, computer industry that he's been in for so long and come back to the uh, people who uh, really love him and want his stuff and uh, even more excitingly there has been an accord a rapprochement as, as you will uh, at Chaosium, and so he's going to maybe be doing some uh, Call of Cthulhu material as well, and so that alone justifies the entire existence of Kickstarter is getting Sandy back. Yeah, it's no, so ab- exciting absolutely. to see him on yeah. the floor. It, it was great to see. Um, there was there was one time I was walking past, and Sandy was was demoing Cthulhu Wars for a whole row of similarly built. Uh, bald guys, and it was Sandy and a bunch of bald guys, and there was one guy who was sort of the new generation of gamer because he was put together and he was in shape and he had really great hair, and it's it, it was so magical. First of all, to see Sandy, you know, his eyes glinting as he explained, you know, how much damage you know being uh, attacked by a Cthulhu army can do or whatever. Uh, a lot, and, I assume. And I suspect. And then to look at this guy looking around the table and wondering, should I have shaved my head? Did I miss a memo? <laughs> What's going on? Yes, will I be jumped in later and shaved? <laughs> yeah, right. And then I'm going to sit there and demo for the whole rest of the show. No, there was. It was just a. It was just a great moment. I mean, seeing. I, I obviously no one had any time to um uh, to do anything, and I didn't want to try and take him away from you know demoing his game. But it was it was just glorious to see him there. And I like like you say, if he's coming back with with both feet, there will be time and time again to to see Sandy and talk to him about what's going on. And if you've if you do the Glorantha Con circuit, you've had a chance to hang out with Sandy and hear him do his seminar thing and be brilliant and inspire you. But there's sort of a whole generation of table toppers who just know him as a titan of the distant past. And so mm-hmm. it's going to be very exciting to see him reintroduce himself to a, a newer generation of folks. And there's certainly you could very clearly see that the uh, games around which there had been big uh, Kickstarters that that excitement was continuing to build momentum at uh, Gen Con. So, you know, uh, Monty was there with the mantle of Numenara excitement around him, and mm-hmm. he's uh, shipping out his uh, thing. And as you said, Fake Core has uh, really exploded, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, going. Well, for example, at next year's Ennies, it's going to be a uh, collision course of amazing games who all hit that first or maybe, you know, possibly second wave of uh, Kickstarters are all going to be competing with one another. It's going to be like uh, the way that 1939 was for Hollywood cinema is going to be uh, battling it out at the uh, 2014 Emmy Awards. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, was, I, was, I was walking around and looking at the, uh, at, you know, at, at Numenera, and looking at the, um, uh, or Numenera rather, looking at the uh, dwindling piles of 13th Age, and hill folk and thinking, man, I'm so glad Knights Black Agents came out last year <laughs> because I do not want to be the fifth game on the Ennies ballot against Numenera, 13th Age, Hill Folk, and Fate Core. I mean, my goodness. 
it's it's going to be a a big monster rally, and and I guess part of that is going to be uh, who continues to build their community over the course of uh, the next year. But and of course you have to catch the eye of the uh, any's judges, right? You can have as much excitement and hype behind your uh, game as you want, but it's got to pass that uh, five uh, tastemakers from around the yeah. world before it gets out there for the uh, public voting and the campaigning and all of that uh, uh, quasi. Uh, unseemly vote for me stuff I, I i feel very confident in my prediction of those four names being on the ballot the um uh, the shadows of restaurant guys also were a were a successful kickstarter and uh so a lot i think some of their buzz uh on this side of the atlantic came from that kickstarter and it came from people getting to see that beautiful concept art and see all the the the, the, the gorgeous uh, work that they put into it i saw some of the concept art for that when i was in france for gen con france low these many years ago and to see them here again now, having sort of gone the whole path all the way to Gold Anyhood, that was pretty exciting and fun. Well, and that really underlines the importance of Kickstarter, uh, not even just as a way of uh, placing a series of uh, lucrative pre-orders and up-awesoming your book, but of uh, building awareness and excitement yeah. and, and uh, a community and, and sense of a tribe. And that in the long run, for the overall health of a game, uh, that might be even more important than the amount of initial money that you uh, bring in. Certainly with Hillfolk, we uh, never planned at any stage, when it, whether that was the initial stage where it was supposed to be a 128-page digest book, to the massive tomes of settings and excitement that they became at the end. We were never planning to just have that be the whole Megillah of, of the game. We wanted something that would uh, build a sense of excitement and hopefully go on to continue to be on people's gaming tables for a long time after the initial shipment. So uh, we've certainly got our fingers crossed that we can make that happen. But there's a lot of really amazing games competing for people's tabletop time. Yeah. In all senses, I think that this is, you know, like you say, it's 1939 in the film industry. It's, um, it's, a, good, it's a good time to be alive and be working and be a game designer and look across the table and say, oh my God, if, they're, if they've got Numenera, that means we have to sort of really, you know, push harder to, 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 to make our game good. It, it's, there's nothing like it to be, you know, at the top of your profession, but not the pinnacle. That's, that's strong. I, I often curse my inability to be in multiple places at once. And because I had to go and uh, do another thing, I didn't get to stick around for much more than the uh, beginning of uh, Monty's Kickstarter uh, panel, but I thought he made a, a really important point about it, which is that what Kickstarter demonstrates is that the supposed death of tabletop role-playing games was, and here I paraphrase wildly and perhaps make my own point instead of his, that the infrastructure of getting games to people had fallen away, but the demand for those games never really had. That There's a, a pent-up demand for increasingly awesome, exciting versions of classic things and things by classic designers, and it just wasn't being met somehow by the traditional three-tier retail structure that shook out after the card game revolution sort of came and went and changed uh, the way that people regarded backstock and sort of, uh, uh, I think, sort of disrupted uh, gamer communities, and that uh, this has provided a real sense of, uh, you know, that everybody still wanted cool stuff and it just wasn't getting to them. And they were, it was more a disbelief in people's interest than a lack of interest that led to that downturn that made people think that the form was somehow dying or dwindling away. 
Yeah, the um uh, the, the topic of uh the three tier system and its uh outmoded nature and the damage that is done to the market uh in tabletop gaming is perhaps a whole other podcast. Uh maybe a thing we always say uh can be built out of it, but it is certainly um any any uh any rumors of our death have been wildly disproved by by Gen Con. So I imagine you got some paneling in, and without reconstructing all of those panels uh, word for word, we'll have, uh, in future episodes, we will recycle some audio from the Gumshoe Investigative Role-Playing Seminar that uh, you and I did with Pelgrane Press honcho Simon Rogers, and we'll pluck out the things from that that are of more general ap- uh, application. A-, a bit of that seminar, it was kind of interesting because initially it was kind of sparsely attended and by people who didn't know gumshoe so we were basically sort of doing an extended version of the booth pitch for the first few questions and then it filled in and, and we got into other sort of more uh, general or fertile areas and those excerpts we will recycle in a future episode uh was there another one of your uh, various panels that you uh, found uh, particularly fun or enlightening to take part in well i always enjoy um doing the uh, delta green panel because it's always great i mean talk about a dedicated fan base who are hungry for anything. Um, it, it's always great to be that, be with them and then to sort of have been accepted onto the team of, of what I always considered and still consider possibly the finest Call of Cthulhu supplement ever created. And certainly, you know, one of the finest Call of Cthulhu properties or derivative properties ever created. And, and so that, that's still a thrill to get to hang out with Scott and um, uh, Dennis and obviously Greg and Shane and, uh, and, and the others and, and be part of Delta Green. So that's always great fun. Um, I wound up soloing on the horror GMing panel because Keith Baker had to go to the airport early and Jared Sorensen, who was full of big talk about how, we, how he was going to show me up <laughs> on the internet, somehow forgot what time the panel was. I, I, I knew that he'd uh, uh, mixed up his panel times. So I didn't realize that he'd uh, left you flying solo. Yeah, well, um, fortunately, um, me listening to myself talk is only a hardship to the people out in the room. Yes, especially on the topic of horror jamming. Yes, but I did have a good time with the guys because since I didn't, uh, since I didn't have two more panelists, I sort of finished my little uh, can spiel in you know fifteen minutes or so, and then it was all Q and A, which is you know really sort of the whole you know uh, energy of a, of, a, of a panel at a show like Gen Con. You want to get people who are you want to find out what you should be designing because you want to know what people want to play, right? I, I always try to get to the Q&A as quickly as absolutely possible because then you are talking about what the people in the room want to talk about, and that's how you wind up saying something fresh mm-hmm. instead of something canned. Uh, you know, Otherwise, you're, you're going to start off with the things you always say, and to a certain extent, uh, the things you always say, of course, are going to spring to mind in response to questions, but... You know, uh, that that whole Q&A process, for example, is where Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering came from. And we right. talked about that a few weeks ago on the show. But, you know, wherever I go, whatever event I attend, I uh, still have people coming up to me telling me that that was a great thing. And that just stemmed entirely from listening to people's questions about uh, GMing and how to fix their problems. And, uh, you know, so I owe a, a huge debt to the availability of panels where you get to 
hear what people want to know. And it's still interesting to this day to go to different shows and get a sense of where the uh, experience level is with tabletop gaming, because that uh, changes the nature of the questions that uh, you will get. Obviously, uh, the people who go to Gen Con are the uh, self-selected creme de la creme, and you get a, a different order of questions uh, mm -hmm. from them than you would at a, a regional show that sort of draws people who are willing to go to a gaming event within driving distance or, or transit distance of where they live, but are not making this great mecca to uh, Indianapolis uh, as part of a, a small a small city of, uh, of 50,000 people. Yeah. the um, uh, It was also fun to be on a panel of how to be a killer DM with Tim Kask. That was surreal, I think, all the, <laughs> all the way around. And, of course, my answer is I ran Call of Cthulhu, so Killer DM is someone who just doesn't change the die rolls. The die rolls. Um, but it was, it was, that was an experience. Um, I'm not sure that it was perhaps the best, uh, <laughs> the, the, the best panel I could have been on, but, you know, you, you, you roll with it, and I certainly, you know, did what I could to provide information. You, you seem to be skirting your way around an observation, Ken. No, no, it, it's just that, again, I have not had to be a Killer DM in forever because I primarily don't run oppositional games and the notion of having to be a killer dm to someone who ran call of cthulhu for nine years straight is again it's like um yes. uh, killing you is only the beginning call of cthulhu players that's right it's, it's like asking a guy who's been training spetsnaz how you how you toughen up recruits it's like i i don't even understand the question <laughs> they're in siberia marching if they're not tough they've they've died in the snow somewhere the question is irrelevant. Did, did Tim have a uh, killer DM tip that particularly uh, stuck with you? Um, Tim had uh, all kinds of, of, of great uh, uh, ideas. And one of the ones that I kind of liked was that if uh, people were getting too uh, cocky and swaggering around the um, uh, setting too much, that you just teleport them to another you know setting. He says if they've really been making a mess out of your out of your 12th century Germany analog, you teleport them to 12th century Brazil analog with whatever they were wearing while they were asleep and let it go. Right, and presumably any group of players who are still playing with you after a couple of uh, episodes in which it becomes clear that you're adopting that old-school super adversarial uh, mode, which I think other of the early lights of D&D &D would claim it was never about. Uh, yeah. But uh, if you have people showing up for that, that's what they want, right? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. um, I was in a uh, panel with uh, uh, Luke Crane and uh, Amanda Valentine, and uh, Jack Graham did a great job of uh, uh, moderating it and uh, did a great job of working the room as he uh, elicited questions. He did more than just uh, point at people. Uh, but I had the delightful moment of uh, seeing uh, uh, Luke in full exasperated uh, comic dungeon mode tell players of Burning Wheel that they were playing Burning Wheel wrong and that uh, in a way you know Burning Wheel as new school as it is does reflect the basic thought that people are showing up to have pressure put on them to be yeah. uh, torqued around and the whole concept of that game is that you pick a belief and then the GM pummels your character for trying to stay true to that belief and twist you into into knots and uh, the people who were uh, quote unquote playing it wrong were the people who are trying to introduce narrative control and cooperative <laughs> storytelling into Burning Wheel. Now of course that's entirely uh, legit in all sorts of other games that are designed for it as Luke of course uh, acknowledged but it's not the experience that Burning Wheel promises you. You know Burning Wheel promises you the 
contemporary story game version of uh, Killer GM, except that uh, w- what the GM is trying to kill is all of your hopes and dreams instead <laughs> of you know d- just your second level fighter. Yeah, no, the um, uh, the, the 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 sort of the indie version of the old school Renaissance, Burning Wheel, and obviously which predates it and is the godfather of it and is the best example of it. But even you know down to things like Dungeon World where. They are um, uh, so very, very loudly, the, the, the generation right before them was so very, very loudly opposed to all things trad, and now what they're doing is racing themselves back to rebuild the trad experience as they've imagined it, because none of them are old enough to have ever played the game this way. The most popular indie game is now Dungeon World. That is so delightfully Ouroborosian mm-hmm. uh, that I uh, have no other uh, words for it. That's, yeah. that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's and uh, and you know and to- Tony Dollar's how to how to make a dungeon, which was a terrific product. I mean, all these products are are great products, but just seeing people sort of cargo cult their way back to Gary Gygax shrieking at people from the back pages of Dragon that they were playing it wrong is well, you know, as as a as a student of historical irony, it is it is de savour, certainly. They're killing your pretensions and taking your stuff. Yes, they certainly are. It's. It's it's a joy to be around, and such very joy to be older than them. You were actually uh, also did a walk on on Jeff Tidball's uh, gaming design seminar, which struck me as the kind of thing that if I were the kind of person who was coming to Gen Con to talk about game design, I would have uh, I would have done that instead. I, I did uh, tell everybody as after I finished my little walk on that they'd gotten a great bargain on my uh, t- usual consulting rate. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, Jeff Tidball ran two intensive. Uh, uh, sessions on uh, role-playing game design, and uh, uh, in fact, that was the thing that I was unable to stick around for the rest of Monty's uh, no doubt brilliant seminar in order to go and do. My only regret is that I did not have thanks for the memories on my iPhone to uh, mm-hmm. play it as I swanned in and out. Um, and so, and as I, you know, entered uh, the room up on the PowerPoint presentation was a thing I always say. There you uh, go. Which is about uh, defining what the core activity of your game is and making sure that everything is about furthering the core activity of that game. So uh, we both know that uh, Jeff Tidball is no slouch, uh, but if you wanted uh, documentary uh, evidence of that, there it was on that uh, slide. And so in a super condensed 15 minutes, I uh, laid a lot of science on those people about uh, making sure that you have a clear through line for your uh, game, a design goal, just as you need a clear through line for a uh, work of fiction, you need to make sure that you have a benchmark to define uh, whether or not the things that you're doing in your game actually fit the main point of that game. I talked about how mechanics need to have an emotional resonance, that they're uh, not just mathematical constructs, but they are making people feel certain ways, and that the, for example, the rolling and re-rolling mechanic of uh, Dying Earth makes you feel something much different than the spending your general ability points in gumshoe do, and you they have to understand the feelings that you're creating at the table as well as whatever it is that you're trying to uh, model or emulate. And then I give them a quick rundown of uh, all the things they could do to be better writers because being a good tabletop role-playing designer also means being a clear, exciting, engaging writer, and that if you avoid some of the very common pitfalls of uh, a lot of gaming writing that you'll immediately be uh, way ahead of the curve on that one. And we've uh, talked about uh, on a previous segment of uh, how to write good what I think most or not all of those red flags that you can uh, 
uh, tear out of your manuscript when you see them on your revision pass uh, are, so I won't repeat them here. But it was uh, definitely very rewarding to come in and give that uh, quick hit and then scoot back to the booth. Yeah, uh, if Jeff charges what he charged this year for the next one, um, you are getting a crazy bargain, and I, I think maybe it might be worth... Uh... Wait, Je- Jeff charged money for this? Yes, yes, Jeff uh, charged I must, money. I, I must have a, a talk with my agent. Yes, well, first of all, you, you must have a talk with your agent, because what he's been saying about you, that guy's a weasel. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, if you, were, um, uh, if, you, if you got to do that with Jeff for uh, the relative pittance he was charging, then you know, try and lock that rate in for next year, because at some point he's going to uh, do the math and realize that uh, he needs to at least charge Robin's consulting rate um, uh, for, for, for the day. So there you go. Surely so, yes. Yeah. And I guess before we close, I think a, a food hut addendum is in order, since we were talking about the uh, dire state of uh, food in Indianapolis. Now, the one delightful new development that we as uh, booth, busy booth weasels cannot always take advantage of is the big line of uh, food trucks uh, all up and down the uh, one side of the convention center, or sort of on, a, an, on an L curve beside the convention center. And I uh, got a chance to eat a few things there, and I really wish I had time to stand in the lines because obviously the process of feeding 50,000 uh, people in the city is one that uh, cannot be served even by any number of food trucks. But at least there's, uh, if you have the time to stand in those lines, there are some of them that are, you know, snacky, uh, you know, food trucky food, but uh, it uh, stands toe to toe as sort of being some of the best food that's in offer within. Uh, walking distance of the convention center. Yeah, I think so. Um, Also, I found uh, two new bars that I did not know about, uh, which I will not say the names of because I didn't want anyone else there anyway. But (laughs) I can tell you that if you you, um, uh, you put a little effort into it, a little research, you too will be able to find at least one of the bars that I found. And if you promise to be good when you come in there um, and not tell anyone, we can raise glasses to our mutual cleverness. Well, maybe instead of a donate button, we can just have a will tell you where the secret bars are in Indy uh, in exchange for a larcenous fee plan. Right. That, well, it's a, it, we, it, we have a series of reward levels. I also discovered that I have been giving somewhat short shrift to some of the hotel restaurants, uh, which have upped their game considerably in the past uh, couple of years and are uh, probably better than most of the chain restaurants now that are around the convention center. So that, uh, I mean, I've always written off restaurants and expensive hotels as just being a, another way of soaking you for a big chunk of change yes, for what is food essentially... Food charging for Wi-Fi. Yes, for, for mediocre food. But now they're uh, charging you the same or perhaps even a little higher amount of money for food that's actually worth it. And the restaurant in the Marriott is actually uh, pretty darn good. Now, they uh, reskin all of the meals with cutesy D&D names, uh, which might lead you to underestimate the fact that they're um, actually pretty tasty. So um, at the risk of sending people to a restaurant I might want to sit at, uh, I would say uh, you might want to reevaluate the, the Marriott restaurant if you've written it off in years past. And also the uh, the Omni restaurant looks like it has... Uh, gone up a notch in artisanal uh, and away from the industrial. Uh, So uh, it looks like those are uh, other possible options if you have the budget or if even better, if you have someone who uh, you are a prospective client of and they are uh, paying the freight. 
Yeah, I can uh, recommend. Uh, I've I've eaten there before, and also with Art Dream. But if you're willing to walk a little farther away from the convention center, the Indian restaurant, with the name of which doesn't immediately uh, jump to mind, but it's something like the India Garden. It's it's named after all Indian restaurants everywhere. But the Indian restaurant that's just a little bit um, past the circle uh, is really good, and they um, I don't, I've I've not eaten a particularly bad meal in that place ever. And since I have Devon Avenue close to hand, I think that I can put my Indian food experience up against virtually anyone in the hemisphere. And uh, the Indian food at the Indian Garden there is really great, and uh, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. And then the other thing that's fun, speaking of our hemisphere, is to take uh, British people, as I took uh, the lovely Beth Lewis and her wife, uh, Neen, to uh, Dick's Bodacious Barbecue, which is not the best barbecue in Indianapolis, which I did to them two years ago. But I like to take uh, British subjects to American barbecue and watch their hearts break because they realize they <laughs> can't get it until they come back to Gen Con. But it's it's actually, it's pretty good. It, for some reason, they call it a Texas barbecue, but it's St. Louis-style uh, ribs, which to me kind of obviates the point. But it's certainly very tasty, and the sauce is very good. So uh, I can recommend Dick's Bodacious Barbecue if you're in the mood for a giant tranche of meat at midday that will keep you going if you've got a, a, a game across your dinner hour. Well, uh, speaking of food, you're about to uh, come to Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, we record this on Wednesday, and you'll be here on Friday. And uh, there, away from the convention center area, there is an embarrassment of food riches, so we will have to t avail ourselves of that. But I sense that we are uh, trailing off into a prefigurement of our Ken and Robin live episode that we'll be cutting at Fan Expo Canada and dropping uh, at some point a little later, probably while I'm away at the film festival. So it sounds like we have talked for about an hour about uh, Gen Con and uh, need to uh, go off again and do all of the stuff that we need to do to catch up on having been at Gen Con. Exactly. We have to finish our email so that I can then go to another convention. And I think another convention and even another convention? Yes, I'm going to uh, not just Fan Expo Canada. Uh, but also then to Dragon Con, now without asterisk, uh, in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend. So if you're hearing this before Labor Day, which I believe you are, and you're in the Atlanta area, come on out and uh, look for me amongst the crowds of uh, X-Men and such that they have at that place. So travel advisories will abound in the next few weeks. And until then, let's uh, go back and uh, do that emailing we talked about. Let's do it. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Gorilla Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find your lost luggage at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>